Hi there, this is Rick Jones of Fishbait Solutions, and welcome back to From the Bridge. Speaking of welcome back, I'm just back from a two-week trip to England to see my daughter, my son-in-law, and probably mostly, most importantly, my two grandboys. Uh, we've been speaking a lot about change, and I'll share some thoughts from what I saw and experienced on the trip. We're also going to dive deep into a discussion on the upcoming 50th anniversary of Title IX in 2022 and what that may mean for women in sports with my very special guest, Debbie Antonelli, who is one of the best college basketball television analysts out there. We're definitely going to take another trip up onto the soapbox, and I'll tell you about one of the best places I have ever eaten back on the road with Rick. So buckle up, the wind is up, and the waves are crashing, but you're safe and sound from the bridge. Yes, change is everywhere. We talked a few weeks back with Wesley Haynes about NIL and how this seismic change is affecting college sports and will for decades to come. As I mentioned earlier, I've just returned from a two-week vacation in England. And yes, (laughs) the combination of COVID-19 and the ever-existing threat of terrorism has made international travel, unfortunately, a real pain in the ass. (laughs) Uh, Firstly, COVID still requires testing, and a lot of testing. Uh, When we got there, we were told that on day two, we needed to take a a test, and that if we were found to be positive, we had to quarantine for two weeks. Uh, So we were in a rural area in the southwest part of uh, England in Cornwall, and uh, we had ordered some test kits, and we took the test, and my son-in-law drove them an hour away to drop them off at a place to be processed, and uh, and long story short, we never heard anything back. We didn't know if it was positive, negative. Nobody cared, but they had gotten 100 pounds each from us uh, for the two tests. And then in order to get back on American Airlines and fly home, you had to take a test three days before you flew. We were able to take that test at a a, a pharmacy in England called Boots, which is kind of the CVS of uh, the U.K., and we had a sweet young gal that took our test and immediately processed them, and we were both negative, and we were able to to get back uh, on the plane and, and come home. But it was interesting, the night before we flew, we stayed at um, a hotel at a Hilton Garden Inn right at Heathrow so that we could turn in our car and just walk to the terminal and, and get ahead of everything. And that night, there's a man sitting next to us, and we overheard him talking. He had flown in two days earlier, had to take his test, and was flying out the next day and had to take a second test. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. He's had a test two days before, but they're going to make him take another one, which is a little bit silly right now. But we're seeing that. I did hear where they've now uh, they've kind of loosened some of those restrictions right now. And if you're a European that has had a vaccination, uh, you can fly in here without any tests. So maybe I was just um, a little too early to be able to um, to do that. You know, secondly, the mass rules, in my opinion, remain a little bit ridiculous too. On the way over. You know, we had a till of the hun as a flight attendant that, you know, wanted us to wear masks and then put them back on in between bites of dinner. You know, take a bite, put the mask back on, take another bite, which is kind of stupid. Um, but but nevertheless, we had to go through that. 
fortunately, on the flight home, there was a more reasonable team that, you know, realized that if you're eating and drinking, <clears throat> you don't have to wear your mask. But I'm, I'm about ready to do that. I will say this, though, about masks. We have been vaccinated. I have had COVID. I have had uh, the antibody infusion. It's still disrespectful not to wear a mask in certain places um, because of other people. And I don't see that as a violation of my uh, constitutional rights. I just see it as doing the right thing and, and, and trying to, you know, to be a good human being uh, as we get through the rest of this stuff. Uh, so my personal opinion is just to show respect where you can show respect. Uh, thirdly, though, terrorism and airport security remain as they are. I, you know, I still long for the days pre-9-11 when it was very easy and pleasant to get on an airplane. Now you pretty much get strip searched and uh, you have to, you know, put your, your, your you know, small uh, items in a plastic bag and, and go through all that craziness um, with that. Uh, but here's a couple of suggestions for those that do travel internationally. Number one, if you don't have global entry, you need to get it. Um, when we got to Charlotte, we actually flew out of Charlotte uh, direct to Heathrow. When we got to Charlotte and we went to customs, <clears throat> there were five other flights, international flights coming in at the same time. So the line through customs was absolutely ridiculous, but we had global entry and there was no line. And literally, you go up to a machine, they take your picture, they recognize you, they spit out a welcome back to the USA card, and you walk out of the airport. Um, and so if you don't have global entry, you should get it. And the other plus to global entry is once you pay your $100 fee, um, then you also have TSA pre-check. So it, um, it, it's really a, a really smart way to travel. The second thing is a thing called Verify. It's the Verify app. And um, it's a great app that loads... Your picture, if you have to take a test, it, it shows your immunization history, if you've had the vaccine, all kinds of things. And it could not have been easier to use both on the outbound and the inbound. On the outbound in Charlotte, the uh, gate agent at American Airlines, and I have no priority on American. Years ago, I had a lot of priority when we lived in Dallas, but I haven't flown them for years. Uh, I laughingly tell people I'm a god on Delta. I have so many miles. Um, but American, I don't. So we we were kind of, you know, in the back of the bus. But the the gate agent was thrilled that we had Verifly because she didn't have to input all that stuff into the system that slows everything down. So those are a couple of suggestions, uh, global entry and Verifly. We plan a lot of international travel in 2022. We're going to Costa Rica for Charlotte's 60th birthday. We're going to France. We're going to have a house and a tour there going to Italy, going to Austria, and going back to England. I hope we can control this virus or at least learn to live with it uh, because, unfortunately, we're going to have to do that. My guest today is the talented, lovely, and oh-so-knowledgeable Debbie Antonelli. Debbie played college basketball at NC State for the great Yao. And you see and hear her a lot on both men's and women's college basketball games on ESPN and occasionally on CBS. She's the first woman to do commentary on the men's basketball tournament on CBS and Turner during March Madness. She's also a wife and a mom to three boys and does a significant amount of charitable work. And last but not least, she lives here in Charleston, too. We've got so much to cover today, so let's welcome my good friend, Debbie Antonelli, to the bridge.
Debbie, thanks a lot for being with us today from the bridge. Hey, Rick, thank you so much for including me. I'm so happy to spend some time with you. Well, we've been friends for a long time, and I'm really, really excited about having you uh, on the show today. We recorded these in advance. I think I find you in the Bahamas uh, today getting ready to broadcast for CBS. (laughs) Uh, So I'm glad you could fit me in instead of going to the beach uh, this afternoon. Um, But we got a lot to talk about. Let's start out um, your background, where you're from. Uh, let's let's take it through high school, and then we'll pick up with you going to NC State. Well, I I, I did grow up in upstate New York, around the Hyde Park, New York area. Uh, my parents are from that part of the the country, and uh, we moved to the Research Triangle area in Cary, North Carolina, when my dad got transferred with IBM, and so I went to Cary High School, and then NC State. And I had a um, the, I'm the oldest of three girls. I had um, incredible parents and and great siblings and. Um, as you know, sport has been a part of my life, uh, since I can remember as a little girl. Um, I, as soon as, um, the first team that I was on was a CYO basketball team. And then, um, the next team I was on was a little league boys baseball team. Um, so I've had uh, a chance to really play my whole life. Well, that probably helped you later in life being the oldest of three girls. And then you get married and have three boys. It's always, I always feel like God has a sense of humor, uh, about, about <laughs> things like that. But the fact that you had played with boys in the Little League, just a piece of cake for you at that point. Were your sisters jocks too? Did they play a lot of sports or were you the the, the only one? Yeah, they. my sisters, um, they participated in, in um, you know, recreation sports and, and um, through the rec department. So softball or one of my sisters was a, a majorette, so she was a fantastic gymnast and baton twirler. And, um, you know, Whatever we did, we had a well-rounded upbringing, but whatever we did, we were not allowed to quit. So if we started playing uh, a sport or like in my situation, uh, my parents made me join the Girl Scouts and I hated it at that time. I didn't realize the value of it until I I was a little bit older. But, you know, once you did something, you couldn't quit. And uh, one of the things my mom had me signed up for was tap dancing. And uh, I didn't like that either. And um, it wasn't until my teacher told me that Joe Namath used to tap dance, and then I was okay with it at that point. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> what um, you played? You went to NC State. Did a lot of people recruit you? Was uh, was it an easy choice going to state? You know, um, it's really interesting. The times are so different now. I did not get a chance to play AAU basketball. Everything was done through the high schools, and uh, every school in the state of North Carolina recruited me, uh, with the exception of East Carolina at the time. But my decision came down to NC State and North Carolina. I had scholarship offers from both. And um, since I was introduced to women playing college basketball and and introduced to women getting a chance to get a scholarship through my experiences going to NC State games, of course, I wanted to play for Kay Yao, who for 30 years became one of my incredible role models and mentors. Well, she was one of the great ones for a a gazillion reasons. Um, You know, clearly a great coach in terms of X's and O's and motivation and all that, but probably a better human being. And, and now we have the legacy uh, for her with the KL cancer fund. Um, I remember going to her funeral and, and it's the only time I've ever been to a funeral where the person that's 
being recognized and being honored was there. Remember, she did a video um, yes. at her funeral with said, "Hey, I'm I'm in a great place. I'm I'm worried about y'all, not me." And uh, <laughs> I, I never I never forget that. It was just it was just amazing, and it was just so like her to. You know, if, after death, <laughs> to still be serving everybody, um, and that's I, exactly I, it. That's, and I, and I, did, did she coach that way? She did. That service quality is what is what permeates her legacy. Um, it's how she wanted to be remembered as somebody who tried to make it easier for someone else. And you know, from a basketball lens, that's the way we played the game. We played the game to make it easier for our teammates. So she counted on us to run the floor hard and make sure you box out every possession and do the things that don't show up on the stat sheet. You know, I made light of this for so many years. I called myself the best non-stat starter in NC State history uh, because um, I've started for three years and I had very little stats in the point and rebounding um, categories, but I, I played like I would average like 29 minutes and not have no stats. How could you have a player on the floor like that? Like who would ever do that today? But it was just the, um, the, the, the way we played, it was the value that you could bring. And it was how she made us all understand that you could be great in your role, no matter what your role is, if it's a player or if it's somebody who's working or if somebody who's, um, becomes a mother or, you know, in your family, it, it was all the same thing for her. It was about teaching people to, to, do the best they could and to make life easier for others. Well, she also came from a family of other sisters that were very involved in athletics. I mean, it's a great family story of all the impact that the Yao girls had and continue to have in college athletics. Um, and so, you know, I think she really served for you as a role model that said, you can do anything. You can be anything. You can dream anything, you can achieve anything. Uh, and I think that's a great legacy, too. Well, there's no question. Uh, I, I fondly speak of my 30-year relationship with her as a camper and then as somebody who was recruited and got to play for her. And then, of course, my broadcasting career, I learned a lot about the game from her. But I really learned a lot about how to deal with people as well because she, um, she, she always put people first. And um, one of the things she always used to say is, when life kicks you, let it kick you forward. It was one of her favorite sayings that she said all the time. I remember her also saying, no stinking thinking. Um, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, the mind, if your mind was positive, you would overcome so many things. That that was just a big part of her her personality. Now, you get out of NC State. Did you go immediately to get your master's at Ohio? I had a, a semester from graduating until I started my master's degree at Ohio University, and I was an assistant basketball coach for Elon College, which was exactly following sort of in her footsteps because that's exactly where she started her coaching career. Uh, but um, I went to Ohio University. I got my master's in sports administration. I was a graduate assistant coach, and um, I went there with the thought that I was going to become an athletic director. I was tracking on that path. Uh, which led me to the University of Kentucky and then as the director of marketing, which actually I was the first director of marketing in the athletics department there. C.M. Newton hired me before he hired Rick Pitino, if you go back to 1989. And then after that, uh, four years at Kentucky, I spent four years at Ohio State in a similar job working for Jim Jones and yeah. Archie Griffin. I reported to Archie Griffin, Rick, which is a little known fact about my my uh, career path is that I've had 
the opportunity to work for two incredible brands, Kentucky basketball and Ohio State football, and some wonderful people in sport along the way. Well, a couple of things you mentioned. One, you know, the Ohio University, we, I call it the mafia. Um, the, <laughs> the, the graduates there are everywhere. And, and if you look across the spectrum of, of sport, um, it, it's just the imprint of the OU folks is, is, is amazing. And, uh, you know, my, my business partner, Mike Millay, is one who graduated there after he, he went to LSU and then went to Ohio University. And, and a lot of times we'll go, Michael dragged me along to some of those reunions at some of the big events and all that kind of thing. And then you mentioned Coach Newton. He, you know, I, I was a college basketball coach at Swanee and – he had played at, at Kentucky, and and I I got to be close to Joe Hall. Joe Hall had played at Swanee. A lot of people don't know this. He he, he played. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, Joe Hall went to Kentucky and played for Coach Rupp. And after his freshman year, Coach Rupp said, uh, uh, "You you can't play here. You need to go down and play at Swanee for Lon for Lon Varnell." <laughs> And so he did, and he went down there, and, and he played and used up his eligibility, and then he ended up coming back and graduating from the University of Kentucky, but he played three years for Lon at, at Swanee. And so when I'm at, you know, at, um, at Swanee, uh, first of all, Sam Newton had been at Transylvania University in, in Lexington and uh, before he went to Alabama, and a lot of people forget Coach Bryant right. hired him at Alabama. Um, and, and, you know, the year Indiana won in 76, the last team to go undefeated, Bob Knight's team in 76, probably the second best team in the country that year was Alabama. They beat uh, Alabama in the regional finals. Um, and he had a great player named Leon Douglas that was just a heck of a player. But then, but when I was at Swanee, Joe Hall used to let us come when we would play center college up in uh, Danville, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. He would let us come shoot in Rupp Arena. And for a Division three program, that was pretty special. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was just – Oh, yeah. That was neat. Um, but Coach Newton was was just good to me, and, and obviously his son Martin and I are really, really good friends. So you really did have some – you know, you play for KL, you get to work for CM Newton, you get to work for Archie Griffin. Uh, and that's where you, you really kind of started um, your broadcast career, right? There was no one to do women's broadcast at Ohio – was it at Ohio State? Where you started? Yeah, well, yeah. I actually, I actually started in 1988. In November of '88 was my first game, Rick. It was at the University of Kentucky. We had a local cable company that wanted to try to produce sports, and we said, "Well, if you want to try, let's try a women's basketball game." And Debbie, would you like to do the game? And I was 23 years old, and I said, "I was fresh off of college, playing and being an assistant coach and being a graduate assistant. Of course, I wanted to try it. It's not something I ever thought." about as a career opportunity because back then if you remember back in the late 80s the only game on television on the women's side was the national championship on cbs so espn is still in its infancy and and there is not a lot of um, programming around women's sports back then so i never really thought that was something that that could happen for me but i did some games It, it worked into a package host communications got involved um and we started producing and and doing non-revenue sports at the time baseball got some games volleyball got some games but I was doing the women's basketball games and then when I left Kentucky to take the Ohio State job that's when I created a network there I went to the local cable company and said can you produce sport they said we don't know I said well let's give it a try come down to St. John Arena tell me what it's going to cost to do eight women's basketball games 
Back then, the number was like $50,000. I said, I'm going to go out and sell the advertising, and then I'm going to get a chance to stay on the air and do the games. And that was my my job, but it was also my passion. And uh, it worked out where I created our own women's basketball radio network and then helped uh, advance the syndication of our um, that was a, a women's basketball television network. I'm sorry. And then I advanced the syndication of our radio network. So we had a statewide women's basketball radio network and all of my four years at Ohio state coincided with one of the great players in the history of our game named Katie Smith, who was from Logan, Ohio. And so it was a, an incredible brand name, a local kid who was an all American who took them to the final four in the first year. And as you know, when the product is good, you can sell it. And that's exactly what what uh, I did and how I got started uh, creating my own network. And then we saw the kind of the explosion of numerous cable, um, you know, channels and primarily ESPN that began to realize there was a market for women's college basketball. And um, and then you saw other networks beginning to do some stuff. How, how did you start? How did you go then from Ohio State into kind of doing it full time? Well, I so that's eight years of collegiate marketing experience. And during my time uh, in my eight years, one of the most valuable lessons that I like to share is the ability to network. You know, I met so many people in administration that would make decisions about talent, about whether they were going to, to even put a package together for games. And so as I was doing games at my at, uh, at Ohio State, I was starting to get opportunities on a, on a more regional level, even ESPN. I think my first ESPN game was at 11 o'clock uh, Eastern t- time, 11 p.m. tip-off in uh, Green Bay because that's when uh, they would put a women's game on, right? And uh, it, was, uh, it was an opportunity for me to get a chance to see that maybe as this grows, my career can grow along with it. And we started to have our family So we had one kid, and then I was like, you know what, I'm going to give this a a run full-time and see if I can make this work. And so that's how I launched really my full-time television and um, radio career is my oldest son, Joey, is 26, and uh, I've been on the air for 34 years, but I've been doing this full-time for 20, almost 27 years. Well, where, your husband, Frank, where did y'all meet? (laughs) June 15, 1987, 9 a.m., first day of grad school at Ohio University. Oh, wow. It was our first class. There wow. were 10 of us in the summer. There were six guys and four women. We went around the class and talked about who we were, where we were from, what we wanted to do. And ironically, Frank played baseball at Columbia University, who, and he played with two guys that I grew up with. One lived 10 doors down the street from me, and the other guy was like a family member. And so uh, we had an initial immediate connection, and uh, I have relatives from Long Island where he grew up. So we had a lot of similarities in our upbringing and our background, and and that's how we met. That's great. You know, I have a business partner, Ron Cook, and one of my favorite sayings that he has is he says, coincidence is when God chooses to be anonymous. And uh, I just love, <laughs> I love that, it. you know, if you look at the track and all that kind of stuff. And and I know he's been a guy that's been extremely supportive of your career, uh, you know, all along. You've had a chance to broadcast some phenomenal women's games, but you've also been able to broadcast some men's games. When did that start? Well, my first uh, men's games were in the mid-90s. 
when Doug Elgin, who is the just recently retired commissioner of the Missouri Valley, hired me to do the men's games. It, it worked out where uh, the men played on Saturday, the women played on Sunday, and it was easy travel. And he had a lot of confidence in me and giving me an opportunity to do that. He thought uh, definitely, you know, I was capable of handling it. He told me years later that he called a couple of coaches in the league and the guys in the league were like, look, you can put her on the air, but if she stinks, you better get rid of her. And um, he said that uh, he never had a complaint, that things went went well. And so uh, I started uh, really doing games in the mid-90s. And then, um, you know, I've, obviously people associate me with the women's side, but the last five years I have worked for CBS on the first and second round yep. of the men's tournament. And, and you know, mm. Rick, I got, you know, that is um, that's a huge caveat on, on my schedule. That is um, that is uh, a very exciting time to be uh, involved in that tournament at the highest level, calling basketball games at the highest level. That's like the Super Bowl for me. So right now, my schedule is about fifty-fifty men and women. So I feel very blessed and fortunate that I get to work at the highest level in the game. Well, you do a great job, and you're you're such a role model for others that maybe want to go into broadcasting, other women that want to do that. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. One of your colleagues at CBS, I was a, I was a young high school coach from St. Simons Island, uh, Georgia, and I decided I would run a summer camp and, um, you know, make a little extra money and have a summer camp, do all this kind of stuff. And I got this kid out of – he was a junior – rising senior out of Duke University named Jim Spinarkle to come down and live in my house and, and, and be, and be one of my uh, counselors. And, um, that year I had Jim Spinarkle and Al Wood. Al Wood had played, uh, played at North Carolina. Oh, yeah. And it was amazing to watch those two guys play one-on-one at night. So I got a Carolina kid and a Duke kid, um, both living, both living in my guest room, um, you know, for a couple of weeks, and it, it was a great story. And I think Spinarkle does another is a really good commentator um, on CBS, and I enjoy his work he, during the tournament too. Yeah. He's fantastic. He's he's a great teammate, and uh, I, I enjoy my time with Jim. He is a wonderful guy to be around. Well, we, we're about to have the. The 50th anniversary, can you believe it? I guess we're all getting old. The 50th anniversary of Title IX. <laughs> and um, I was on a call the other day with Carol Steff, and she read the 37-word legislation that Richard Nixon signed. And ironically, it does never mention the word sport. Title IX, everybody thinks it was a, a sport law. Right. It, was, it was an equality law. And it was a law basically that said if you're any institution that is taking any type of federal funding, you cannot discriminate. Uh, but That's that right. legislation opened so many doors, didn't it? There is no question. I sit here with you on this podcast thinking about how fortunate I was during my time uh, to be able to be to play and how it's influenced and impacted my life, my husband's life, and my children. Uh, it's it's such an important piece of legislation that we should celebrate because it's, it is important, and sport is important. And you're right. It wasn't meant to be about sport, and it is referenced around sport most of the time with federal funding, but that's exactly why we get to do what we get to do and enjoy it at the highest level. 
um, women's sports, I always feel like every year we're on the cusp of turning the corner. And now it feels like it's even a better time. But I think back to the passage of Title IX and the opportunity for me to play Little League Baseball. And I remember being on the field with parents yelling, get the girl off the field. She doesn't belong. She shouldn't be there. I can specifically remember vivid memories. And I have asked my parents, what was it like to sit in the stands listening to that? You know, and having people say, get this girl off the field. She doesn't belong out there. Well, guess what? I only, not only could I play, I was good. I was second baseman. I was a shortstop and I pitched. And I had guys throw at me, Rick. I, they beamed me in the head. They threw at me on purpose. I mean, I've listened to, uh, I've had to recall and recount some of that as we get closer to the 50th anniversary, because I believe that back then having the chance to participate in sport and to have the resolve and the stick to itness, right? Because my parents would never let us quit that I could move past all that and play because I love to play and block that stuff out and be able to be tough enough to be able to finish. And and I, I think that has helped me even today in my career. And it certainly has helped me in raising my three boys. Well, I, I remember and, and fondly remember the, those pioneering athletes that were really became role models and, and mostly they had to overcome the prejudices. You had to overcome some yo-yo in the stands yelling that you didn't belong. I, I think about the great Jackie Robinson and, you know, Branch Rickey was very selective about making him the first mm-hmm. uh, African-American to play in the big leagues. You know, the, you know, people forget the guy was a running back at UCLA. He, he you know, he, he had a, he had a college degree. He was a grown up, but he had a temperament that was going to be able to, to tough it out. I, I tell this story a lot, but there's a wonderful scene in the movie of 42 where, um, he turns to Branch Rickey and, and uh, Harrison Ford played Branch Rickey in the in the movie mm-hmm. and, and he, he turns to him and says, Well, why me, Mr. Rickey? And he says, um, Jackie, I'm a Methodist, you're a Methodist, God's a Methodist. <laughs> and that was his line <laughs> to tell him it, it was gonna be fine, it was a higher calling, yeah. it was designed. And then I remember another great story when when Coach Bryant got annihilated at Alabama by uh, Southern Cal. Southern Cal came to Birmingham and beat them 42 to 21 with a bunch of great black athletes, Sam Cunningham and others. And, and coach Bryant, you know, thanked John McKay at midfield and they were good friends. And he said, what are you thanking me for? I just beat you 21 points. He said, Oh no, believe me. Thank you. Well, the next morning, a whole bunch of Alabama fans got up and said, we better get some black players. And, uh, and and the (laughs) first, yeah. And the first guy he recruited was a guy named Wilbur Jackson out of Arkansas, who's, I think his daddy was a superintendent of schools and his mama was a principal. You know, I mean, it was one of those Mm -hmm. kind of families and somebody that could take it. And I do think about a lot of women that have had to overcome obstacles. You can't do this. You can't do that. um, And had to be stoic um, and, and had to, you know, kind of just take the high road in a lot of ways and say, well, let, let mm-hmm. me just prove it on the field. Let me, let me just show you that I, that I can play. Yeah. Uh, but I look today, I, I think playing a team sport, I've always said this is so essential to life. 
Um, at, at Fishbait and all my other previous agencies, we've always recruited a personality profile. And, and, and the trait, trait was you had to have played a team sport because, you know, education's about doing your own work, but life is about working with others. And, and you learn that on a team. And like you said, you played at NC State and didn't show up in the scorebook very often, but you got a lot of playing time because you did all the things that nobody else wanted to do. Dive for loop balls, screen, rebound, block out, pass, you know, do those. And that's life. That's what you have to do mm-hmm. uh, in life. And now I'm seeing women like you and other women in so many aspects of life, so many women senior executives, CEOs, CMOs, COOs, and a common denominator is 90% of them played intercollegiate athletics. That was the difference in their lives. Talk about that a little bit. No, I agree with you 100% because no matter where you go, you're always on a team. You could be a team dynamic with your family, which is what we have. Uh, We call it Team Antonelli. It could be in the workplace. It could be anywhere that you go. You're never going to be void of a team uh, unless you live a completely isolated life. Um, But I think uh, the, the intangibles that come with sport, the ability to overcome, to have the toughness, to believe when no one else believes you can, to put in the, the extra effort. And unfortunately, you know, I try to live by this, but sometimes it's hard because there are times when people doubt or don't believe you belong or, you know, we've, we've felt marginalized or not included or not wanted. But, you know, I think the world is starting to understand that different voices are important and they matter. I try to go into my job and trying not to prove something, just trying to improve. When I sit down to interview a coach and it's a coach that maybe I haven't worked with before or is not familiar with me and doesn't know me well, may have heard me on the air, but doesn't really know anything about me. uh, I don't go into that situation trying to prove that I belong. I'm trying to improve. I'm trying. I'm curious by nature. I want to know how and why. And I think those things have helped me uh, get past what might look like some sort of barrier because, you know, the two cliches that I only talk about in reference to women, and, and that is don't judge a book by its cover and you don't know anything about somebody until you've walked a mile in their shoes. And that is also uh, important in the way we've gone about raising our middle son, Frankie. And all the things that I've learned from sport, from that time on the Little League field where somebody told me I couldn't, I have experienced that through the eyes of raising my son, Frankie, who you know has Down syndrome and is a full-time college student at Clemson Life. Uh, He has overcome, and he has shown the ability to fight and compete. And and I've been right there alongside him, advocating for him and for families like mine. Well, someone um, asked me one time, I'm the oldest of three boys, and they said, when when did you become so uh, interested in women's sports? I said, it's really easy. It was the day my daughter was born. Um, that mm-hmm. changes everything. I mean, at that point, you're all perspective. But, but even though I was the oldest of three boys, my mom loved sport and loved baseball and was very engaged. Um, and my dad was a federal investigator who traveled all the time. And and my mom was the, you know, the little league mom, the team mom, drove me to basketball practice, drove me to football practice, drove me to baseball practice, threw the ball in the backyard, did all those kinds of things. So, you know, I grew up with a great female role model 
that, that you know loved sport and felt like sport was going to be a vehicle to make us to make us all better. You know, you you talk about um, Frankie, and you you know y'all have done a great job raising him, but you've got to just be so proud of of what he <laughs> has overcome. I mean, and and candidly, you think about it in a in a different century, this would have never happened for him, and and yet we've realized that we 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 that the special needs children can do ex- extraordinary things if they're given the opportunity. That's it. Um, I wouldn't even say another century. I'd say just a few decades ago, uh, to be honest with you. Um, the, you know, the, the times have changed dramatically and because times have changed, they have allowed for families like ours to experience our child having uh, a chance to be a full-time college student and have the full-time college experience. And that's what Clemson life has, has provided for us. Uh, it's provided an opportunity for him to live independently, go to class, have a job. He's in a fraternity. He's on an intramural team. He works as a manager of women's basketball. He is fully immersed in the college setting and he is thriving because of it, because he was given a chance. Now there's a lot of work that goes into getting him to that point, um, and and he has, you know, he I run my mouth, he delivers. That's the way I say it um, because I'm always advocating and fighting for, fighting for him to have a chance. But yeah, we're we're so fortunate that, and we're blessed that our timing is such that, and there's a place like Clemson that he can go and and really live his best life and make a lot of friends. Well, I have a. I have a grandson, my oldest grandson, who has not severe autism, but pretty significant autism. And my wife and I were talking the other day about, you know, he's nine now. And we were saying, you know, by the time he's ready to go to college, there are going to be colleges that understand autism at a different level. And there are going to be great opportunities for them. And so we're seeing so many strives, I think. In looking at the potential of, of every individual and saying, how do we make them the best they can be um, anyway? That's what I always loved about sport. You know, it didn't matter who your mom and daddy were, what race you were, or your your economic background. Could you play? You know, can you walk across the, the lines and, and actually play and contribute? And that's the, that's the beauty of sport. Now, you do something that I think is phenomenal. You have this free throw challenge to raise money for special events. Talk, talk about how you started it and talk a little bit about, about what you want to do with it going forward. Well, thank you so much for asking me about it, Rick, because it's something that's very important to, to me. And I think about it every day. Uh, how can I make it better and what more can we do to raise money for families like mine to give kids a chance to experience Special Olympics? But it's called 24 Hours Nothing But Net. It's a 24-hour free-throw shooting marathon. I came up with it three years ago, so we've done it for three years. I make 100 free throws on the top of every hour for 24 consecutive hours. We live stream the entire 24 hours on YouTube and Facebook, and we raise money for Special Olympics. Uh, we, the first year we raised 85,000, uh, I shot 94%. The second year we raised 125,000 and I shot 89%. We moved outside to, uh, my driveway because of COVID, which has actually worked out great and has made the story even better, I think. And then this past year we raised over $200,000 and I shot 94%. And each year we have had 
uh, almost doubled the number of donors. So our reach is is getting extensive. Um, we have added other states that are doing the exact same thing that I'm doing to raise money in their own state. And I would really like for this one day to be like the torch run or like the polar bear plunge where Special Olympics has another event where in each state, everyone is doing something similar to try to raise money for their respective state. In three years, we're over $410,000, and I'd like to see that number get to a million fast. Well, it's amazing what one person can do and then getting other people to buy into that and be able to do that. I remember a few years ago, somebody posted the ice bucket challenge for Lou Gehrig's disease, and suddenly everybody, it just caught on, um, and they raised so much money from that. Um, and I think this uh, Nothing But Net free throw challenge has a chance to do this similar kind of thing. And so, you know, we need to figure out a way to get more people involved and more people doing the same thing, shooting free throws over 24 hours and, and promoting it and, 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 and doing that because you give people uh, – you give a lot of families that sometimes don't have the same resources that you and I have mm-hmm. the, the ability to say, we're going to provide some opportunities for your son or daughter. Uh, well, to, to play. we've just spent, we've just spent all this time together talking about why sport is important and why people should play. And it's no different for the intellectual disability or the physically disabled community. They need an opportunity to, to play and train and organize and that's what Special Olympics does. It gives those young people a chance and young adults a chance to compete. And trust me, if you've ever been around a Special Olympic event, they want to compete and they want to win. Uh, and, and it's fun to be around. And it's been a, such an important part of, of our family. Um, and it's been an important part of Frankie's development overall. So we're, we're really proud of him. To, and we're really excited about being able to help other families like ours. And your youngest is playing at Emory and Henry, and that's kind of fun too, isn't it? To watch, I, 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 my, oh. my, you know, my mother, my daddy would come to every game. I made my mother too nervous. I mean, she just couldn't handle it. She, <laughs> she just, she's just like, nope, I'm not going. I can't, I can't handle it. But you've had a chance to see him play a little bit this year already. Talk about that experience. <laughs> it is unbelievable to watch your kid to know where Patrick has his own story about where he came from and. He was too small and too short and, you know, no one was going to uh, really give him a chance. And we made some decisions about his development and, and how he'd go about training and, and competing. And he basically loves the game. And I kept him out of the circuit because I didn't want him to lose his confidence because he was small. And now he's grown and he's worked and he's, he's 5'11 and he's got a 40-inch vertical. And he has uh, has developed into a really good point guard. I like to say he's got a D1 point guard mentality and a D3 body, and he plays D2. So he's right in the middle, which really challenges him. But going to those games and watching him play is definitely nerve-wracking. I think it's the most nervous thing that I do right now. I could be on CBS or ESPN, and I'm more nervous watching Patrick. I think it's because we, we just want him to do so well. Yeah, you know, he may. I'm thinking he may end up being your coach. I mean, he. I, I, I've always felt like his game. He thinks like a coach. You know, he's a point guard. Point yes, co- he does. Yeah, I mean, he just. You know, he just sees it all differently than uh, than other people, and he may he may be that. I want to go back to a closing segment and just talk a little bit about. Even though Title IX, 50 years, great opportunities. You know, last year at the women's Final Four, we saw some egregious differences. You know, we we saw um, a post. Um, 
um, where the women's weight room was, without being derogatory, was a joke compared to what the men had. And, and so it seems like as far as we've come with women, we still got a ways to go. Um, how, do, how do we get real, real equality? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a loaded question for somebody like me because there's lots of different directions that I could take that. Um, you know, I think uh, I love that, you know, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary and we're talking about equity and there's no question we know how important equity is. And it's a federal law. You know, in some instances, we we have to do a better job of complying with a federal law. But then there's another component of it, Rick, that you and I have talked about before, and that is the economic part of the equity. You know, I I want the women's basketball, I want women's basketball to have a seat at the table where they have an equitable seat, where we're actually trying, because of the product is, the product is so good that we're trying to sell our product, that we're in a position where we are looking at it as if it is an opportunity for economic growth, not just equity. And so I look at things from marketing and fundraising in an external uh, lens, and I see so many opportunities for our game to have a seat at the economic table. But we have to be willing to make some significant changes in how we go about formatting our tournament and how we present our product. And if we're willing to do those things while we're talking about equity, we will be able to raise the bar economically. And I have some very strong opinions about it. I don't want to take up so much of your time, but if you ever want to do a podcast on the Sweet 16 to Vegas for women's basketball, let me know because oh, I can I go love on that. why yeah, I feel yeah. important about that, why that's so important for our game. Yeah, it's interesting. I, one of the things that I, I feel, and, and I don't want to, you know, here I'm a, I'm an aging baby boomer Southern male, so I have to be very careful what I say, but I've never been politically correct, so why would I start now? But you you can have a great program without being just like the men. In fact, I think trying to be just like the men sometimes is mm-hmm. is a detriment to the game. I love your idea of having – the Sweet 16 in one city and having it in Vegas. And, and I mean, A, it's economically more viable. B, it creates huge interest differently. Um, and I think you, you, women's basketball has to think differently about it. You know, this year, all I've seen is two things, and they're both imitating the men. We're going to call the women's tournament March Madness, and we're going to go to 68 teams. And I'm mm-hmm. like, you've kind of missed the whole point. The whole point. Yes, that's low-hanging fruit. Yeah. That yeah. is what I call the low-hanging fruit. You're yeah. absolutely right. We're on the same page here. You know, I've been talking about the Sweet 16 to Vegas, but to a destination city for 13 years. And I don't, 13, I don't, and I don't understand why they don't want to try it. You know, we find that in the opening round games that are home-hosted, which makes so much sense, because here's the deal. If you're a 16 seed and you're in the NCAA tournament, don't you want to play in front of a packed house? Don't you want to have a unique experience that you go, you know, we may have gotten killed by South Carolina, but what a wonderful atmosphere. And I think going to the home hosted first rounds did that. But then the regionals sometimes it are, are, are not great experiences. And in Vegas, right. it would be a packed house every game. 
I, I love that idea. And then you go to the obviously to the Final Four, and that's going to be a packed house. So I, I do. I think if we really want to consider the student athlete experience, I worry about the bowl games. I mean, we're heavily involved in bowl games. Nobody wants to go to bowl games where there's nobody in the stands. That's right. that, that's not a great experience for the student athlete. Some, you know, same, I I I'm, I look at it, Rick, like exactly through that lens. You know, it, let's look at it from the perspective of a fan. Okay, the way the women's game is set up right now, there's only one school maybe two that would consider buying tickets to a regional, but the way we're set up and and this is not to disparage UConn at all. So I'm not picking on Connecticut, but I'm just stating the fact there is a regional in Bridgeport or Albany almost every year. UConn fans are the only ones that can put tickets for their regional underneath their Christmas tree because no one else in the country can do that. There's no way the NCAA is not going to send UConn to Bridgeport. They're going to send them there. They're going to be a first or a second seed. Most of the time, they're going to be the first seed, and they earn it. But no one else can do that. If you're a fan of the game at any other part of the country, you have to wait until Monday of Selection Monday, and then you're going to go, if you're good enough, you're going to play at home. But then you don't know where you're going for a regional. How do you expect fans to support our game when they don't even have the timeline to be able to do so? So we have... That inequity right there for the fan is the way I'm trying to present it now. We want to grow the game. For 30 years, we've been doing it the exact same way. Why do we have to move it around? Moving it around doesn't actually grow the game. No, I love it what we've done. The venue. I, yeah, listen, I love what the NCAA's done with baseball and softball. They have a, they exactly. Have, I mean, it, they, those cities have adopted to the where it becomes an amazing experience for the student athlete and for the fan. If you're a great softball program, and, you know you're going to Oklahoma City. I mean, so. And the coaches like it. Yeah. However, we've not been willing to take a risk because we have done it like the men. And you're right. Our rules aren't even the same. Men's and women's basketball rules are not the same. There's right. so many differences right. in the way the game is presented. We have quarters. For some reason, everybody feels like we got to speed up the game. Okay, the men's game is, you know, the women's game is like 250 on the average. The men are, are over two hours on the average. Okay, so they, there's just so many differences in the way our games are presented. We don't have to do the same thing that the men are doing. And, yes, March Madness has been available to the women, and they chose not to use it. Going to 68 is just low-hanging fruit. It gets you um, equitable but we're still missing the point about economics. And I think we are set right now with the way the product is, how good our game is, how balanced the sport is across the country. Uh, as at the time of our taping, South Carolina just beat UConn in uh, the battle for Atlantis. Uh, and then I'm here at Baja Mar, and we've got four of the top seven teams in the country playing in our women's event. We've got South Carolina, excuse me, we've got NC State, Maryland, Indiana, and Stanford. Okay, nobody has a tournament like that. Okay, so we're, we're our product is good, and we need to celebrate our product, and we need to put it in front of people in the right presentation. And baseball and softball have made Omaha and Oklahoma City destination cities when they weren't destination cities for those sports when they started. We well, need to do the same yeah, thing on the women's I, side. I agree. One of my favorite sayings is the old – 
Einstein definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for different results. I'm hoping that coming out of the Kaplan report, that there's going to be meaningful change and not perfunctory change or, like you said, low-hanging fruit change. But we'll watch it. Hey, good luck the rest of the uh, basketball season. I I tell people that you and I see each other more on planes than we do in Charleston. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we both live here, but I see you on an airplane all the time, and uh, and, and we're always off. And it's usually an early flight and a late flight. We're always uh, (laughs) going running someplace and all that. But let's and I appreciate you being with us today. Ladies and gentlemen, that's Debbie Antonelli, who is one of the best people I know. Debbie, thanks for being with us. Rick, thank you so much. I'll see you soon. Let's jump back up on the old soapbox. Well, it's ever clearer to me just how divided our country continues to be. The recent elections in Virginia, which led to a victory for the Republican candidate for governor, and the election in New Jersey, which led for a victory for the incumbent Democratic governor, both of these elections substantiated our divisions and that no one party has any mandate at all for any legislation without engaging with the opposition. When you win 50.5 to 49.5, that is not a mandate either way. So I'm sick and tired of hearing from pundits and extremists from both sides of the aisle talk about these supposed mandates. And I'm even more tired of one party with a slight control trying to cram legislation down our throats. And I mean either party. Sometimes I wonder if I might indeed be actually in the majority. I'm a moderate, both socially and fiscally. I think I've told you before, I think I'm an Eisenhower Republican. What does that mean? Well, both parties tried to nominate the general in 1952. I wonder if there are any more moderates out there like me, those who know that only through compromise can we ever get anything meaningfully done. Of course, there's little drama with moderates, and we don't drive gross rating points for CNN or Fox News. And maybe that's why no one ever talks about us. And that's my view from the soapbox. Yes, I really did get back on the road with my trip to England. And I ate at a lot of great new places. I had wonderful fish and chips, great Indian food, a memorable French meal, and lots of wonderful fresh seafood. But the best meal I had was at the George Hotel in Stamford in the rural Midlands of England. Stanford is a very charming town, and they've made lots of movies that were filmed there, like Pride and Prejudice and The Da Vinci Code and a bunch of others. The George Hotel opened its doors in 1597. Yes, you heard me correctly, 1597. It was on the original post road, and it was what was called a coach hotel. So you got your horse and your coach, and you traveled north from London. And the the, um, hotel still has the space where you could drive a cart, a horse, and coach into the uh, into the very end 
Uh, we dined in the uh, Oak Room restaurant, which is one of two restaurants in the hotel. The Oak Room is their formal dining room. Um, and I, I'll tell you an interesting story. I um, Normally when I travel internationally, I always have a sport coat. But this time I decided not to ch- check any bags. So I took two small bags on the airplane. I just didn't have any room for a sport coat. I didn't have one. Well, this formal dining room required a sport coat. So I told uh, the person when we made the reservation that I didn't have one. She said, well, do you have a nice shirt? I said, yes, I do. And she said, well, we'll, we'll be fine. We'll loan you a coat <clears throat> to walk in, and then we'll let you lay it on the back of your of your chair. And uh, when I got the deal, they said, oh, Mr. Jones, we've already checked your coat in the cloakroom. <laughs> so we had a good laugh about that. But uh, we did eat here in the Oak Room. Um, I had a very traditional British dinner of roast beef from a cart carved table side. Of course, it was medium rare, very thinly cut with lots of gravy and horseradish on the side. Came with Yorkshire pudding, and for those of you that don't know Yorkshire pudding, it's like a pastry. It's almost like a croissant uh, that you ladled tons of gravy on. That's just an amazing uh, dish. Uh, also had um, potatoes roasted in duck fat and a side of Jerusalem artichokes prepared three different ways. Charlotte and I had a great uh, bottle of Italian red wine. It was simply an amazing meal and a great way to end our trip. The Oak Room at the George Hotel in Stanford, England, on the road with Rick. If you get to England, you need to eat at this place. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks to my good friend Debbie Antonelli for being my guest and to you for listening in. I hope you'll join us again next week from the bridge.